0: Well, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. It's so nice to see you. Uh, Historically, like since the invention of Thanksgiving, this Sunday is the lowest attendance Sunday in the history of the year. Um, That's just the way it goes. And we just, uh, we'll gather as the faithful. We are the sheep. The goats are out there doing something else. So uh, we'll we'll look at it that way. I'm very excited to be in Psalm 9. I keep thinking that uh, we'll run into some repetition, but we do see lots of similar themes, but every psalm is unique. Every every psalm has its own uh, flavor and personality, so to speak. So um, you can turn to Psalm 9 and I'll pray for us and get our day begun. <clears throat> our Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning, a, a cool fall day in which to gather with your people, to worship you. What a joy it is to have spent uh, at least a portion of this week with Perhaps a little more focus on being thankful on the gratitude that we ought to have. And even uh, our psalm today begins, I will give thanks to Yahweh with all my heart. And so that's our hope this morning. That's our our thought. That's where our our hearts are. I pray, Lord, that this psalm this morning warms our hearts towards you and prepares us for uh, the gathering of the whole body this morning. I pray that you would teach us, that you would grow us, that you would deepen us in our faith, that you would uh, pour a greater foundation beneath us, Lord, that we may stand firm in the faith. That's our desire today, and I pray that Psalm 9 would help us toward that end. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Psalm 9 is addressing something that is uncomfortable it's maybe a difficult topic and that's the the subject of injustice of things that aren't fair things that don't feel right <clears throat> and specifically it's just something that's hard for us to talk about i think but the need for vindication like that that's a word we don't use all the time you know you, you're not giving gas and you spill some well i need vindication we, we don't use that all the time it's it's not a, a usual topic of conversation But the irony is is that all of you either are experiencing or you have experienced injustice. You've experienced it and you at least experience what you feel like is injustice. But there's basically three arenas that injustice happens in your life. I think this covers all of them. Uh, The first arena is the world at large. You only need to read the news to see the consistency of the fact that wicked men and women have the most power of the corruption and the immorality um, from those who are supposed to use positions for the good of the citizens. Uh, Even now, one of our United States congressmen is being brought up on this and that by ethics committees, and yet he's pointing fingers, and and you just think, I think they're all corrupt. And that's how it feels. It feels very unjust. Uh, People getting away with murder left and right. Uh, You you would be astounded at the number of politicians that have... uh, these coincidental suicides and deaths of people all around them that just happen to not support their agenda or happen to try to expose some evil in their lives. It's, it's, it, it's almost too much to grasp. You just say, come soon, Lord Jesus. And so we experience that and we're shocked at how, um, <clears throat> what ought to be obvious that we condemn Hamas and we support Israel. We're shocked that that's not happening. That in our nation, People who are supposed to be the very people who understand freedom more than anybody else on earth don't whatsoever. And whatever is right has become wrong. Whatever is wrong has become right. So you experience injustice um, with the world at large. Now, probably the easiest way to deal with that is just quit reading the news, but it's still there and it's still happening. The second arena at a little bit lower level that you experience injustice is the the arena of life-altering events. In your life, and there there are thousands of examples of this. It could be uh, <clears throat> children taken away from a loving parent simply because the other spouse had a better divorce lawyer. That's a, a horrible tragedy. Slander with life-altering implications, where people in your life who used to trust you and used to love you never will at the same level because of something others have said. Broken relationships in which no number of humble attempts to fix that will, will avail anything. It won't fix it. Mysterious circumstances that don't seem to have a discernible explanation and almost could lead you to believe that God is out to get you. Because you can't figure out any good reason. You can't see anything good coming out of this. And so you're tempted to deny your own theology. Uh, Things like a a horrible financial tragedy, a disabled child, an accident, or a sudden death of a family member. All kinds of things that that lead us to say, I, I have no way to wrap my mind around why this would even be part of God's plan. There's a third arena. And this one's a little harder to grasp. But I would call this one the day-to-day seeming injustices. In other words, the little things which, if you're not careful, can consume you with a desire to control or manipulate or maneuver around your circumstances to create what you deem to be just. It's very difficult for us when we think we have any options whatsoever to simply accept injustice and to just let it be. This may be little things. Not getting your way on something with your spouse or with your parents if you're still under their authority. This may be something in the church not going exactly the way you think it should. I I get to be the recipient of people making suggestions uh, on the one end of the spectrum and just demands on the other end of the spectrum. That doesn't happen very often. But um, I like to tell them, you, you know who else doesn't get their way all the time in this church? Me. Believe it or not, we're a plurality of elders, not a dictatorship. And so... Uh, that might tempt you to say, well, this is unjust and so I'm going to respond sinfully to it. It may be the trap of having a mental picture built in your mind of how an event should go or how a, a meeting should go and it doesn't happen at all and you find you are bowing down to the idol of that picture and when it doesn't happen, then you begin to respond sinfully. This can result in being what the world calls a control freak. An inability to deal properly with what is at least perceived as injustice. I've had people in counseling use that word, this is just injustice. Um, Your husband left his socks on the floor. That's not injustice. And so those are the three arenas. The third one is probably the most slippery because it, it enters into the realm of how we respond to even little things. So there's no lack of areas in life where we have to deal with injustice, it's everywhere. It's, it's part of our lives. Psalm 9 is here to help us learn how to respond to that and to have a proper response to it. And so I'd like to talk this morning about how to wait for vindication. How to wait for vindication. Let me talk about vindication for a minute because it's not a word we use all the time. From the world standpoint, vindication can be as lofty and high as uh, the concept of justice in our legal system or it can be as low as the sinful concept of revenge and retribution. And so vindication from the world standpoint has a wide variety of meanings. We already know that the Bible commands us not to be vengeful. Romans 12 tells us this as well as other passages. So from a biblical standpoint, what is good and righteous vindication? What is that? Let me give you a short definition of vindication. Vindication is an act of God whereby he reverses injustice. Vindication is an act of God whereby he reverses injustice. Now, I I chose the word reverses specifically because the most that humanity can do, we're limited, the most we can do even in the most righteous situation is to attempt to remedy an injustice. A a lawsuit can attempt to recoup losses, uh, prison sentences or execution can be given as legal retribution for murder or capital crimes. Church discipline can be rendered to the unrepentant. So we can remedy a situation, but we can't reverse it because the effects of the wrongdoing are still ongoing. They're still happening. The one stolen from still has to deal with the mess. The family whose loved one was murdered, even though the the guilty party has been given uh, retribution, the murdered person is still dead. And the family still deals with it. Church discipline uh, may provide relief to the church, but trust me on this, the effects of that person's disobedience continue to ripple. And so we may be able to provide remedies at a human level, but we can't reverse injustice. But God's vindication is so comprehensive that for all intents and purposes, it undoes what was unjust. I believe this is one of the major meanings of the idea from Isaiah 25, from Romans 7, from Romans 21. The promise that God will wipe every tear from the eyes of the redeemed. You know as well as I do, you can still shed tears over things that have already been resolved. He says he wipes every tear away. It means tears of the present, tears of the past, certainly no tears in the future. What is the wiping away of every tear? Revelation 21 defines this as no mourning, no crying, and no pain. That is reversal. That is injustice made right. And we take it even a step further. It's not just that God responds well to injustice. That's actually called open theism, and that's a, an incomplete view of God. It's not just that God uh, is the best responder in the world. In the economy of God, it's not just that He can Reverse injustice; he caused it in the first place, and he allowed it to happen because what does Romans eight twenty eight say? That all things work together for good for the redeemed. And so, not only is there a reversal, but God in His power makes good and delightful things to come of injustice. The kind of Romans eight twenty eight of the Old Testament, Genesis fifty verse twenty. This is uh, Joseph speaking to his brothers, and he he basically tells them what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That by selling me into slavery, uh, I've been able to save our family during the famine. So how do, you, how do you do this? How do you understand God's vindication? How do you have the peace that you need? And that's what we're going to talk about. I'll give you the short answer now. The way to wait for vindication is just wait long enough. That's all, is waiting long enough. Our problem, I don't think, is so much believing that God will give vindication. It's just our problem is waiting for it. And I'm going to address that from a couple of angles. Now, just a little bit of background here. Psalm 9 is actually very closely related to Psalm 10. They're both very similar in their vocabulary. Both con- uh, contain an incomplete acrostic using most of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and uh Psalm 10 simply picks up in the alphabet where Psalm 9 leaves off. Um, <clears throat> the use of an acrostic, it may have been a memory tool or it also could convey something. The, I've covered this topic from A to Z, kind of an idea. Both the Psalms are on similar topics around the idea of vindication and protection. The Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Latin Vulgate, that was the uh, translation done by Jerome around 400 AD, both of those treat Psalm 9 and 10 as one psalm. They, they put them together. We'll go ahead with the, uh, the separation here. We'll treat them separately, but um, next time you're reading Psalm 9, you might want to read Psalm 10 because it really does form a unit. I'm going to read Psalm 9 to us and then I'm going to give you some highlights and then I'm going to organize it thematically on how to wait for vindication. Psalm 9 is for the choir director, Almuth Laban, A Psalm of David. I will give thanks to Yahweh with all my heart. I will recount all your wondrous deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my justice and my cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. But Yahweh abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will rule the world in righteousness. He will render justice for the peoples with equity. Yahweh also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of distress. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to Yahweh, who abides in Zion. Declare among the peoples his acts. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. Higayon Selah. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Yahweh, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh, Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. I want to just point out some highlights. There's a lot of verses there. And then I'll organize it thematically. Just walking through it briefly. In verses 1 and 2, David begins the psalm with praise. This includes singing to the Lord. And we also see singing in verse 11. In verses 3 through 6, and this is important to understand where David's coming from, he recounts a time in the very recent past where God gave him a military victory over his enemies. And he characterizes those victories as total. In verse 5, he says, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. This is most likely referring to the events of Second Samuel 8, and 1 Chronicles 18. David struck down four nations. The Philistines, the Arameans, the Moabites, and the Edomites. But then in verses 7-9, through nine, he turns from the past to the future. His, those enemies have been defeated, but not all of them have. And so there's still more to come. David declares that this is coming. That the, the enemy will be defeated, and that is certain from God. In verse 10, David declares that God will never forsake his own, that all who have trusted in the true and living God will be vindicated. That there's, there's no category of follower of God who won't be vindicated. That category doesn't exist. Then in verses 11 and 12, this is a a call or an invitation to the congregation, to all of Israel in this context, to declare their praise of God and to be assured that as a nation they'll be vindicated. Then in verses 13 and 14, David gives God the rationale Here's the rationale, that if you, God, protect me, if you vindicate me, that I'll be able to publicly praise you in Jerusalem. I'll be able to rejoice in front of God's people at the salvation God has given him. And then in verses 15 through 20, David declares in, in multiple ways and in no uncertain terms that it's impossible for the wicked to escape the judgment of God. That, that that's absolutely impossible and it's impossible for For the righteous to be forgotten by God. And so he ends with this great declaration. Now that's just a a quick overview. I want to focus on the theme of how to wait for vindication. Every single one of you at some level is waiting for vindication. You can't escape this life without injustice in one, two, or maybe all three of the arenas uh, that I mentioned earlier. But Psalm 9 really, uh, might put it this way, fills your quiver with arrows you're able to deal with this and it builds very high walls of spiritual protection and peace around you i want to make this as practical as we can and show you six ways to wait for vindication that psalm 9 teaches i believe very clearly six ways to wait for vindication and they'll all start with uh, with the first way to wait for vindication with skillful praise with skillful praise One of the byproducts of anemic pulpits in the church has been that the average Christian, in my estimation, tends to have a very shallow or self-centered definition of praise. And it's usually something like this. Praise is the singing time in church where I get excited about Jesus. That's, That's what praise is. It's associated with the generation of emotion, with excitement, without any reference at all to theological content. It's pure emotion number of months ago, I was speaking with someone about evangelizing teenagers. And this is a, a person in, a, in a, what I would call a classic American evangelical church that, that is a mile wide and an inch deep, theologically. And, and this person said that when you evangelize teenagers, the goal is to get, quote, unsaved teens excited about Jesus, unquote. And that sounds so good. In, in other words, The emotion of excitement is what precedes actual salvation. If you think about that for a moment, that actually has no relationship to the biblical gospel whatsoever. It's impossible to be excited about Jesus as an unbeliever unless you're excited about a Jesus that is false and has been created by someone. But that's symptomatic of the weak teaching and and preaching that plagues so many churches. And so I want to talk about skillful praise Skillful praise is defined in Psalm 9 as having two major components. Two major components. The the first component of skillful praise is what God has done, what He's done. Verse 1 I will give thanks to Yahweh with all my heart, I will recount all your wondrous deeds. Now, this is where understanding the the parallelism in Hebrew poetry is helpful. This is what's called synonymous parallelism, that the first line is saying the same thing as the second line, just in a different way. And so, I will give thanks is defined as recounting all of God's deeds, listing them. This is skillful. This is praise that takes time to list back to the Lord all that he's done this is not just singing 87 verses of I love you Jesus I love you Jesus I love you Jesus it is taking time and and he says with all of my heart or with a whole heart this parallels your wondrous deeds that there's an intentional effort there's an exertion of giving thanks the recounting of God's deeds I, I like that word in English to recount, count them again And so it's skillful. It's it's not emotion. It is the generating of from your memory everything you can think of that God has done that causes you to give Him thanks. So skillful praise means what God has done. And the second component of skillful praise is who God is. Who God is. And we find this in verse 2. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. I want to be very precise here because that first line, be glad, it means to rejoice in action and exult. It's similar to be glad except there's a note of triumph here. So there is emotion. There, the worshiper is rejoicing. He's exulting and notice in what? In you, meaning that the focus is on the person of God, the truths of God. Now this is where I want to be very precise. Emotion in worship is not inherently wrong. We, we're not saying that whatsoever. But the reason to be glad, the reason to exalt, is based in truth. It's based in theology. It's based in what you know. So if you don't know much about God, you can't praise Him very well. We sing who God is. We sing the truths of God. And in fact, David gives a sample here. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And we said a week or so ago that... God's title of being most high is almost always associated with His sovereignty. And so there's that, that glorious, high and lofty understanding of God. In fact, there's a very clear connection to this singing to declare the truths of God in verse 11. Verse 11, Sing praises to Yahweh who abides in Zion. Declare among the peoples His acts. This is a, a call to gather together with God's people and notice how verse 11, by the way, presents the, the same two components of praise, only in reverse order. First, praise God for who he is, and then second, praise God for what he's done. Declare among the peoples his acts. I, honestly, uh, I think that evangelism could be made a lot easier if you simply had it in your mind that when somebody asks you, who, you know, what kind of God you serve? You start listing what he's done. Well, he's a God who parts the Red Sea. He's a God who walks on water. He's a God who comes to earth as a man. And you list his acts. And Why is skillful praise, and I took some time to build that foundation, why is that so vital in our time of waiting for vindication? Why is that so important? Well, it's because praise not only gives God what's due to him, but praise hammers theology deeply into your own heart. You get comfort in the character and the actions of God. By the way, just a side note here, um, the Bible knows no category of genuine Christian who says, I prefer to worship alone and in my own way. We're told how to worship. We worship God for what he's done and who he is. And we're told to worship together. But this is why... The idea of singing songs designed purely to induce emotion by uh, vain repetition or, or musical hypnosis. Uh, musical hypnosis is the use of long, extended, similar types of music for a long period of time to soften the emotion and to soften the sensibilities. And this is used in churches all the time. There, there, is a, there are techniques for doing this. There are conferences you can go to to learn how to use music to... to turn people into uh, mental putty to do with what you want. So that is absolutely useless to use music to try to induce some sort of trance-like state in people. It's a counterfeit. And even non-believers can say, yeah, I really really felt something when I was there. Well, it's no more than you feel when you go to a really well-done concert by some musical artist No, we're to employ skillful praise for who God is, that's theology proper, and what he's done. His actions of power and might and grace and mercy. So skillful praise hammers theology into your own heart so that you you don't worry about the injustice as much because you see the power and the might of God. It's the second way to wait for vindication. With exceptional theology, with exceptional theology, now, specifically, Psalm 9 highlights what we'll call the sovereign justice of God. Now, I'm putting those two together because if you think about it, without sovereignty, meaning that God's power, his knowledge, and his wisdom all work together all the time. Without God's sovereignty, justice isn't possible. And without justice, sovereignty is helpless. It doesn't do anything. But Psalm 9 declares the sovereign justice of God all over the place and we'll just do a little survey here verse 4 for you have maintained my justice and my cause you have sat on the throne judging righteously david is likely recounting the recent victories over his enemies he clearly credits god And, and listen this is way more than the silly football player who scores a touchdown and points one finger to heaven That's more like, thank you, God, for assisting me in my life, in my will. David says that God has maintained his justice. What does that mean? It's a Hebrew word that means he manufactured it. He made it. In other words, this isn't just David saying, thanks for the assist, God. This is David attributing all justice to God who judges righteously from his sovereign throne. Verse seven, but Yahweh abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. Uh, The word abides in the first line, it, it literally means to sit enthroned forever. The second parallel phrase confirms this, but Yahweh sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment. To sit enthroned in the ancient Near East, everyone knew what that meant. That meant you have all the power. It meant that you're in charge. You wield force and influence. There's an old saying that we use when something isn't going right or we're surprised or we're shocked. Uh, The old saying is, well, God is on the throne. And that's a good saying. It's really a shortened version of verse 7 here. But that's really not just a declaration of well, no matter what happens, God is still on the throne. No, verse 7 says no matter what happens, God is still wielding His will. He is still doing everything. He, he wasn't surprised. He didn't have a quick huddle with angels going, how are we going to deal with this one? Verse 8 Still on the sovereign justice of God. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will render justice for the peoples with equity. There's no sense of doubt. There's no fingernail biting. God's shall judge the world in righteousness he shall render justice with equity it means in fairness that everyone gets what they deserve except for the righteous we get what jesus deserved right the sovereignty of god if i can put it this way is not concerned with your sense of timing he's not concerned with your time frame He's not even concerned so much as to whether or not justice happens in your lifetime. That's primarily our concern. In the economy of God, your death, your going home to heaven is just a little blip on the radar. It's not that big of a deal. The sovereign justice of God is certain. Whether it happens in your lifetime or not doesn't make any difference. I think that's one of the dangers of Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism demands that the justice of God happen every four Novembers. Right? That somehow that's going to make a difference. How many times does that work so far? Zero. It doesn't work. Verse 9, to keep looking at this overview, Yahweh also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of distress. Stronghold is the idea of a fortress, or it can actually mean the top of a mountain, the, the highest place. It's you having the high ground. This cannot be a promise that in your lifetime, all injustices will be made right. But this is a pretty astounding claim if you stop to think about it. That God is so perfectly sovereign, so perfectly in control of every event that he guarantees that every single person who belongs to him will be protected and that all the times of distress in your life will end where? In the stronghold, a place of safety and perfect justice. Verse 12, the sovereign justice of God for he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. To the believer in Christ, this is a comfort. To the lost, this is terrifying, Where it should be. This is a picture of God cataloging and remembering every single sin, every single injustice, every single wrong, and what will happen here? God will require blood. He will require it. Everything will be paid for. Every cry of the afflicted, every tear you've ever shed because of injustice, every moment of anguish, it gets cataloged. It gets uh, saved up for future retribution. Um, Elsewhere in the Psalms, King David says that the tears I've shed, you've stored them in a jar. That they're stored up. Verse 16, still under the sovereign justice of God. Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. Now, you all know the phrase, he had what was coming to him. We understand what that, what that means. Uh, in the South, they used to say he needed killing. Uh, that's just, that was justice. And we say, oh, he had it coming to him. Well, David here presents God as being the active agent in setting a trap, setting a snare. A trap by means of the acts of the wicked. Now, we have just tripped over here a major theological point. And so I'm going to pause for a second. The major theological point we come to here in verse 16 is the intersection of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of mankind. And we see them coming together here. That mankind is snared by what? The work of his own hands. Meaning for every wicked deed that he does, that much more punishment is saved up for him. And yet, here's the intersection. It's God who himself is made known and God who executes judgment. This is very important because when God punishes mankind, this is not the act of a moody, sullen God, little G, like the pagans believed in, bringing disaster on innocent people just because he feels like it. Now, all the retribution that will come from God, all the vindication that will happen to the wicked is directly related to and because of their own actions. We even see this in Romans 9, that God chooses some to be vessels of mercy and others to be vessels of wrath. And there's a very clear uh, grammatical distinction that those who are vessels of wrath have chosen that path themselves, that that is their responsibility. Verse 15 says the same thing. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. What does that mean? They had it coming. They had it coming. By the way, that's one part of the cross of Christ which is so profound because you had it coming, right? That Christ took what you had coming upon himself. The only human in history who didn't have it coming took it for you. The end of the psalm verse 19 gives a final declaration of God's sovereign justice. Arise, O Yahweh, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. This final declaration says that mankind cannot and will not prevail against God. It's impossible. Now, I went through this little survey because I wanted you to see that David is given this exceptional theology of the sovereignty of God, the sovereign justice of God, verses 4, 7, 8, 9, 12, 16, 19, and 20. What does that tell you? It tells you that a strong theological underpinning and foundation is absolutely crucial to waiting for vindication. I don't know how any Christian who isn't solid in the sovereignty of God gets out of bed. That's what we lean on. Or if I could put it this way, a weak view of God Makes you weak in your ability to wait on the Lord. A strong view of God strengthens your ability to wait on the Lord, even all the way to your own death. It's a third way to wait for vindication. We'll call this with historical comfort. With historical comfort. In verses 3 through 6, David recounts his recent victories with these descriptors. Enemies are turned back. Enemies stumbling and perishing before God. God rebuking the nations. God making the wicked perish. God blotting out their name. Which means, by the way, not just killing David's enemies, but eternally wiping them from history. Perpetual ruins, ruined forever, uprooted cities. The very memory of them has perished. Now, I want to point out something. No vindication, no justice, no retribution, no punishment that you can think up even comes close to the divine retributive justice that God has planned that he will serve up. Or maybe we'll put it this way. Because we've experienced grace, it's easier for us, I believe, to understand that the grace and kindness of God is infinitely greater than we can imagine. And we even sing hymns to that. Grace, grace, wonderful grace. But how about believing, on the other hand, that the coming justice of God toward those who have violated God's holiness is also infinitely greater than you could ever dream up. The terrors of God's judgment, I believe, should really give all of us pause to ever stop complaining that the wicked don't seem to get their reward. In fact, you can almost take it too far. I think that if you contemplated what eternal judgment really entails, an eternity in hell, it, it may actually be tempting to say, oh, Maybe that's too much. Maybe God has gone too far. No, if you think you can't comprehend grace and kindness, neither can you comprehend the depths to which God will place the unrighteous, that he will harm them. When you contemplate that hell is forever, that every single wicked act by the unbeliever will be placed in front of him, condemning him for all time, I think that gives you a small idea Of just how holy God is. And how offensive sin is to him. Now I call this way to wait for vindication. Historical comfort. Psalm 9 is so useful. Because David is at a place in his kingship. Where he's been around long enough. To see God's faithfulness. To see that he does provide retributive justice against his enemies. And therefore, all of his promises to do so in the future should have you resting easy. I've heard unbelievers say, I I can't go by blind faith. We don't have a blind faith. We have a God who gives us so much evidence of his greatness that we're fools not to believe it. And so historical comfort helps you. So far, we've done skillful praise with exceptional theology, with historical comfort. There's a fourth way to wait for vindication With factual reminders. Factual reminders. When you're facing injustice, your emotions are not your friend. They're not helpful. Your yearning for justice right now won't serve you well. The pit in your stomach of seeing the wicked prosper might be too much to bear. Unless, unless you place before yourself one repeated and regular reminder about the Lord. Verse 10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. David's reminding himself that at the end of the day, God has never forsaken his own. That doesn't mean that years or maybe even a lifetime of injustice might not be endured. But the fact is, God has never one time forsaken one person who seeks after him. Not one time. Let me define what it means for God to forsake someone. In Hebrew, it means to leave them behind. To leave behind someone who is truly seeking the Lord. And never once has God ever left behind a true worshiper. Never one time. The one who loves him and serves him and belongs to him. Not in any eternal sense. Jesus said it this way in Hebrews 13, 5. I will never desert you or leave you, nor will I forsake you. How many times has God forsaken the righteous? Never. Not one time. When it feels as though the wicked prosper, God has not left you behind. When it feels as though evil is won and you've lost, God will not left, has not left you behind. When vindication seems impossible, you may literally find yourself on your deathbed with some things undone in your life. injustices still unaccounted for. God has not left you behind. He hasn't. And this is the simple but profound fact that David reminds himself of. Here's a fifth way to wait for vindication with prayerful hope. With prayerful hope, I get asked this question a lot. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? It's not that complex. Well, you're waiting for something to happen, right? You're waiting for him to do something. Verse 13, Be gracious to me, O Yahweh. See my affliction from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Now, there's an interesting parallel here. God is the one who lifts David, this: from the gates of death, from being close to destruction, close to losing everything. And David's future desire is to recount God's praises, his mighty works in the gates of the daughter of Zion. That is Jerusalem. And so you have that contrast from dark hopelessness on the brink of destruction to what we might describe as festive, music-filled, joy-filled, song-filled celebration, celebrating the salvation of God throughout the streets of Jerusalem. And I think it's a fair question. How do you have this prayerful hope for the future? How do you look so far ahead? Well, according to Scripture... According to the prophet Jeremiah, the way to look far ahead is first to just look to tomorrow. That you only look one day at a time. You look at every day. Jeremiah gives such tremendous wisdom. Lamentations 3, after having witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem, he says this. This is very familiar to you. The loving kindnesses of Yahweh indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every what? Every morning. And right after that, great is your faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul, therefore I wait for him. That's an interesting phrase. It's not one we use. Portion. What does it mean that Yahweh is my portion? It's the idea of holding out a plate and somebody else is in charge of serving you. And whether you get served every day, you get served a faithful God. That's why... They are new every morning. His compassions never fail. For Jeremiah, literally seeing the smoking ruins of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., the compassions of God are new and every day brings new hope. Or if I can put it this way from Psalm uh, 9, every day takes you farther from the gates of death and closer to the gates of the daughter of Zion. And what's David's simple prayer in verse 13? Be gracious to me. Be gracious to me. This is a simple prayer. It it simply says, show me favor. Show me favor. It's not a prayer of hopelessness. It's a prayer of expectation that there will be a day when total vindication happens. I mean, listen, just in our our humanity right now, we get excited about simple little things like a a football team making a comeback in in the final seconds of a game. And we get so thrilled with that. Imagine the thrill of every injustice for all of history and all of your whole life being shown for what it really is. I, I don't know if there's enough banners and, and noisemakers and whatever you're going to do to celebrate that. Let me give you one final way to wait for vindication with theological declarations. With theological declarations. Verse 16 ends with the double technical terms Hegion and Selah. In our Bibles, it puts them together. There might really ought to be a period after Higayon. Selah is a pause of some sort. Most scholars agree on that. Higion is probably a weighty pause, and it means all the instruments are going to play here for a while before we sing again. And so it's a musical term. The eminent 19th century Old Testament scholar Franz Dielich, he took this as a quiet moment before verses 16 through 20 were going to be sung and, and the, the whole thing went to very quiet music. Maybe even uh, what musicians call a grand pause. Where something builds and builds and builds. And suddenly there's a moment of just absolute silence. And then it starts quiet. This is the way it's supposed to go. The verse 16 ends in a crescendo. Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment in the work of his own hands. The wicked is snared. Pause. Instruments playing quietly. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Yahweh. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them to fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. Symbol crash. Right there. That's what Higeon Selah means. What is this? This is David ending with theological declarations. Verse 17, the wicked will die and they will be judged. Verse 18, God never forgets injustice. Verse 19, prayer is the way God will bring justice to the world. And verse 20, every knee will bow. Theology is paramount to understanding how to wait for vindication. Without it, you're, you're left to just some emotion to help me get through the day. The wicked will die and be judged. God never forgets injustice. Prayer is the means of God's coming justice and every knee will bow. Just said way more poetically than I could. Even the tribulation martyrs in heaven cry out for justice. Listen to the account of the fifth seal being opened in Revelation 6. Now I want you to notice something. I'm going to point out something in particular. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the witness which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them. And was told to them that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Now, I want you to notice this. God did not answer their question of how long. He just said, generally speaking, until I'm done. Even in heaven, the saints will be required to exercise faith and trust in the Lord. It'll be perfect faith and perfect trust. And what were they to do in the meantime? Rest a little while longer. Now, can I tell you something? The secret to the Christian life in the midst of injustice is to start that now. Rest a little while longer. That's it. Because your foundation is set and you ask, how long, O Lord? And he says, I'll let you know. In the meantime, rest. That's it. Our Father, we thank you for Psalm 9. Every person here And every person hearing this short time we've had together is enduring some level of injustice. Some may be life-altering situations which will never be resolved in this lifetime. And yet we trust you and we will rest a little while longer until your work is complete. And we look forward to that glorious day when we celebrate and we sing and shout and dance for joy when all injustices are reversed. And all that you have done and allowed in this world is brought to good. For our good and for your glory. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You're dismissed. We'll see you in a few minutes.